living on earth with a divine nature. The title of this morning's teaching is, Do We Really Have Everything We Need to Be Spiritually Strong in This Corrupt World? I love the hymns of the church. They have their weaknesses. The one we just sang is a, is a great hymn. The number of times I've stood around a burial plot just before we get back into the vehicles on a cold winter day and everybody's standing there and, and I will frequently sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" I have some questions with that, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Is that how it works? Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I want to look at a text with you. First, 2 Peter chapter 1, the first four verses, and I want to talk about them a little bit. You'll, you'll see as we, as we uh, work our way through them. It's amazing that we actually have letters written by Peter. This is, this is the Peter who, who uh, cursed ever knowing Jesus, denied it. Uh, went out and wept. And here you find this older Peter writing to persecuted Christians having a hard time of it, on how to find grace not only, how to find grace not only forgiving, cleansing, but transforming. That's the idea. How to find grace not only forgiving, but transforming. And, and, does the reception of grace work the same way in both of those cases? In other words, is it just as easy to receive grace in a transforming way, character, lifestyle? Is that just as easy as receiving grace for the forgiveness of past sins? That's what I want to look at in this text. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, I'll talk about that because it freaks people out. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Just think about those words for a minute. They're really radical. Can you imagine today on some TV talk show where you've got a group of religious leaders from all different faiths. Can you imagine somebody getting up and saying, well, I'll tell you, the only faith that counts is if yours is like mine. If your faith isn't my faith, it has no worth before God. Can you imagine somebody saying that? How would, how would we view How do you view it? Is that an intolerant Talk? Is that judgmental? What is it? A faith of equal standing with ours. He means ours is the apostles. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How's that going to happen? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in, in the knowledge of God. So he's going to talk about knowledge. Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's go to the next. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's not even talking here about forgiveness. Life and godliness through the knowledge. I wish this was on the same slide. There's just no way they can do that. But so you can see this is the second time he's talked about knowledge. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So when he talks about knowledge here and in, and in the previous verse, it's not just a general knowledge, it's a, it's a knowledge of this, knowledge of the promises. Are you tracking with me? There's, there's a way that our lives will be transformed. There's a way that grace will be multiplied. God has made all provision. He's made full provision. He's just said that. Through the knowledge, and then he says in the next verse again, the knowledge by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises so that through them, what's them? It's this, isn't it? Through the promises. That through them, now look at this, you may become partakers of a divine nature, living on earth, with the divine nature. That's what we're talking about in this series. How's that happen? Having escaped. Whenever you see a word like escaped. Um, there's, there's an aggressive side to that. If I've escaped something. It means something was after me. Something had its claws around me. Something was trying to entrap me. And I escaped. So that's a pretty active verb for the way this world and the spirit of the age is out to, to, we read it in the text of Romans, to take your mind and bend it in its own shape. In other words, to, to, pre, to prevent this from happening, partakers of a divine nature. If that's going to happen, you have to escape something. If, if you're going to look at the promises, find something precious, life-changing, not just for forgiveness, but for partaking of a, of a divine nature. Then, then you're going to have to escape something that is after you. That, that's what he's talking about here. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's in you. You have those. I have those. Let's pray. These are great words, full of revelation, because your Holy Spirit put it there. And, and, and we, want, we want to be 
possessors, partakers of a divine nature. We want grace to be multiplied, not just received. We talk a lot about receiving grace. We want it to be multiplied, grace, in our lives. And so help us in this study to key in on the things that you want to do in our hearts and lives and the way you want to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When divine grace is given, it is complete. Immediately, freely, complete for forgiveness. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You don't qualify for it. There's nothing you can do to get it other than repent. And grace comes. And it is, it, it carries with it uh, God's erasing of our past guilt and sin. If I read this text right and this whole epistle right, that's the way grace comes for forgiveness. But grace must be multiplied in my life if there is to be ongoing transformation. Now, just think about what I'm talking about here. The diff- it's the difference between someone who just constantly goes to Jesus over and over again, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Does Jesus forgive? How many say he forgives? All right, that's carried. He forgives. How many of you can think of at least one Christian somewhere that you wouldn't want to doubt their salvation because someone's going to accuse you of being judgmental? But you you can think of someone who has had an experience of their conversion, but when you look at the life, it doesn't seem like it really took all that well. Can anybody think of one person like that? Let me just see your hand. Yeah. What happens there? Here, Here are two people. They both come to Christ. Are they both forgiven? I think they are. Because you don't qualify for forgiveness. That's, that, that's the way forgiveness works. And then you come and you see them six months later. And, and there's, there's this guy. He got saved and he actually never wants to go back to church. He watches the same movies. He visits the same internet sites. He fights with his wife. This guy, you, you see him and you think, I, I don't even recognize him. The, the life is just totally different. He loves the things of the Lord. He loves God's people. How do you account for that? Is it like a vaccine where, you know, it just like it works on some people and it doesn't on others? Is that how grace comes? So the issue here is very practical. Forgiveness... Grace just carries forgiveness automatically. Transformation, grace must be multiplied in our lives for ongoing transforming power. So all of the blessings God's grace can bring into my life aren't carried automatically. They're provided, but they aren't carried automatically. We're going to look at Four truths in two studies, two this week and two next Sunday. 
Notice that phrase, to those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours. That's interesting to me because Peter's a Jew. He's writing to these early Christians, many of whom were Gentiles. Added into the mix, some of these early Christians had come out of different religious backgrounds other than Judaism. And it's striking to me that Peter doesn't measure their faith by its sincerity or the length of time they have been in it or how passionately they practiced it. All of those traits, by the way, have become the standard of measurement of our society for any religion. They're the measuring sticks used by our culture in evaluating people of faith. They don't care what faith. And even that title shows that we evaluate things by sincerity, the sincerity with which the beliefs are held, rather than the objective content of the faith. But that, that's just not the New Testament. Peter says he's writing to people who claim a relationship with God, people who claim a knowledge of God, who claim the forgiveness of sins, who claim eternal life. And he says, I know your claims are valid because your faith is the same as mine. It's apostolic. Try and, try and let those words land on you with impact. This is nothing but intolerance in the opinion of our culture. Everyone, most of the people you know would strongly object to what I'm saying right now. Faith, says Peter, is measured, first of all, by the content of its object. The New Testament just refuses the modern inclination to psychologize religious faith. It's not therapy. The New Testament, while recognizing the inward transformation that Christ does bring, it measures the truthfulness of the Christian faith outwardly by events in history rather than inwardly in just thoughts of the mind. The other thing you can see here is that the Christian faith is a proselytizing faith. That's not a dirty word. Your faith must be the one I'm writing to you about, Peter says. Christians rapidly move away from that kind of argument. We place tolerance toward diversity and what works therapeutically for individuals above specific absolute truth content where religious views are concerned. And that's just not the case with Peter as he writes under the direction of the Spirit of God. Here's what Peter stresses. Point number one. Faith is defined around the person and work of Jesus Christ. You get that in the very first verse. Simon Peter, he says, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't get bent out of shape about Simeon. 
The earliest manuscripts on which the ESV is typically based frequently used Simeon as an equivalent to the more familiar Simon. If you had an NASB, which uses Simon, you'll also see a little footnote stating that the earliest manuscripts frequently use Simeon. So it's a six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of a thing. But here's the important phrase in that first verse. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's, somehow that's the heart of faith. Um, we need to be righteous. Almost everybody knows we need to be more righteous than we are. Almost everyone knows that there's something seemingly wrong with humanity. We're, we're constantly making a moral mess of things. I mean, we're civilized, we're intelligent. But we, we, we see what pride does in our own hearts. We see selfishness, we see greed, we see materialism, we see idolatry, we see distraction, we see laziness. So this is the issue of all religions. All religions. Mankind needs help. And all religions have some kind of a solution to that dilemma. There's a distance between God. We need to reach him. How are we going to do that? That's, that's religion. Some stress the need for deeper thought and meditation. Some stress the need for acts of charity and kindness to others. Some stress the need for seclusion and isolation from the world. Some stress the need to keep certain laws and regulations about holiness. And all of those things have some place in a devout life. But they can never be the starting place. Peter immediately links together righteousness with something that, something that God has done for us. And he says that what God has done for us is, is not nebulous. It's not mystical. It's historic. And it's specific. It, it's done first, in other words, in outward acts, not in our heads. He has done something in our own history. He has done something concrete through Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter isn't, he's not hesitant to boldly claim the identity of the faith of the apostles. If you want to know what it is. It's the cornerstone of Christianity. You have received a faith of equal standing with ours by the the righteousness of God is revealed, revealed on the cross where sin is punished. And the love of God is revealed through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If it doesn't start there, it's just another religious attempt. Man-made. Human-initiated. Yes, you must be right with God. Yes, you must be righteous and holy because God is just and he does hate sin. 
And so you read the commandments, you see the requirements, you make your resolutions, you strive to be better than you were before, and, and you find something in you that, that arises and rebels against the light. You can't measure up. And so Peter says, God comes. God comes along beside. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He never came to offer us instruction. He doesn't come to offer us a message or a philosophy to try and live by. He offers himself in sacrifice. In him was life. He comes and he pays himself for the sin and wickedness of mankind. He comes and satisfies his own terms of justice. That's what Peter means when he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the message. And here's what Peter says. No other kind of righteousness is adequate. Other good works must be the fruit of this freely given righteousness through Jesus Christ. No amount of works outside of Jesus Christ will stand before God. Why? Why does Peter lay this foundation all over again? And I think he does it, not because it's too complicated to understand, but he's, he's given us a hint already. Because this is the one cornerstone of Christianity, it never ceases to be pulled against by both other religions, and non-religions. This is what's attacked. This is what's denied. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. It's this. This is problematic. Maybe I can say it like this. Maybe it'll stay in your mind. You will never live as a Christian in this world, if you make this conviction known, you will never live as a Christian in this world when this conviction will rest peacefully in your hands. Never. The the spirit of the age labors to lure the careless mind into seeing this central truth as both intolerant and unreasonable. And so Peter comes at it again with these Christians because he knows this truth has to be constantly refastened. you got to nail it down all over again. We have to do that. Churches have to do that. This leads Peter immediately to his next point, point number two. Once you know what you have in Christ Jesus, you must grow and increase in it. You see it in the second verse. Grace and peace, there's, there's the verb. Be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. There's always a need for balanced teaching, isn't there? You see it right here. This is a classic example. Peter emphasizes 
two sides in two verses. We need to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ first of all. What we can never do for ourselves. Then after that, immediately he jumps into... We need to understand what we must do for ourselves, what will never be done for us. You can't do what only God has done in Jesus Christ, and God won't do what you must do to grow in Christ's finished work. Notice how the pieces of this second verse all fit together. If if you're going to thrive and flourish in this Christian life. You need to stand up against trial and temptation and the corruption that is in the world. Peter is going to address this wicked pull of sinful desires, desires in our fallen hearts. He's going to address it in, in that fourth verse by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's the knowledge of those things. He said twice, you have to have. How many promises from God's word, sitting right here, how many promises from God's word could you recite? Well, Pastor John, that's that's a little legalistic, isn't it? If I read Peter right, the effect to which your life is going to be transformed and possess a new nature is dependent upon how many of those promises you know. Am I misreading that? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, that's those, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, so this, being partakers of a divine nature is dependent upon knowledge of those promises. So also, the the ability to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's That's the negative way. Divine nature is the positive side. Escaping the corruption, that's the negative side of the new nature. But both are dependent upon that. If you and I are going to stand strong in the faith, we need God's help. We need the strong influence of God's grace on our lives. And we can certainly use our wills in our choosing to please God, but we can't, we can't change the direction of our own wills, our own hearts to start with. That's the difference, you see, between godliness and mere morality. I'm required not only to keep the rules. Anybody can give rules. Rules from the Bible, rules from another religious book, rules from a church. Anybody can give rules. And people will do their best to keep them. They'll hit a few. Some are easier. You maybe haven't murdered anybody. But coveting. That's morality. Here are the rules. Do your best to keep them. What is the new nature? What is godliness? Godliness is, is uh, on his law, he meditates day and night. It's his delight. So it's, it's, it's not just that I try to keep the rules. It's that I, I treasure. I treasure righteousness. 
My, my, heart, my heart is tilted in that direction now. In a way that it never can be apart from God's grace. That's godliness. That's the new nature. But we have to grow. There's forgiveness that comes and then we have to grow. Grace has to be multiplied. I'm, I'm, I'm powerless to grant to my own heart assurance. We can't stand up against the accusations of the devil and the sting of our own conscience unless we're sure of the blood of Jesus, the power of God's grace. We need grace not only to be given, we need it to be multiplied. And apparently, the, the power of grace being multiplied in our hearts, that's what sustains peace with God. There are people, you know of them, I know of them. People in this world who live in the fear of death. They live with the fear of judgment. They have no peace because they aren't right with God. There are people like that. And there are other people who live for all the enjoyment and pleasure and wealth that they can possibly find in this world. They have no rest because this life is all they think they have. And so the clock is their enemy, and they're frantic about finding as much gusto as they possibly can. But people who are sure of God's grace in Jesus Christ are people who can live with, they can live with peace. They, they have peace because they stand clean before God. It's, it's the regenerating Holy Spirit who, Romans 8, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So they're, they're content in their hearts. They know who they are. They know why they are here. They know where they are going after this life. You can't manufacture that. And so verse 2 teaches that grace and peace are precious possessions for the Christian. But it also teaches something else. Grace and peace aren't just mental concepts that get stamped lifelessly like doctrines in our heads. They aren't static labels on the outside of a can. Grace was meant to be multiplied in your life. How long have you been a Christian? Grace was meant to be multiplied in your life. Multiplied, expanding, dominating in ways that it wasn't when you first received it. You were totally forgiven when you first received grace. You weren't transformed when you first received grace. Grace and peace can grow. They can be multiplied. That's the word Peter uses. They can be powers that lead to easier holiness. More steady witness and confidence. Deeper assurance. That's the main point of verse 2. Grace and peace. Grace and peace have to grow in their effect in our hearts. You can't just live on inspiration. That's what Peter's saying. 
You can't just make it on hot church services. You can't survive just on worship songs. You, you won't be able to feed indefinitely on feelings of happiness and euphoria. Not where the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ is lacking. When those things are lacking, when they aren't being multiplied, your knowledge of God, when it's not being multiplied in your life, the impact of grace will dry up. That sense of peace with God and joy and strength in Jesus. It'll start to evaporate. It will. Peter in this very same letter is going to say in chapter 318, grow in grace. Grow in grace. And he's consistent. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's always attached to knowledge. Why would that be? You can't love what you don't take the time and effort to know. There was a time when you didn't love your husband or your wife. Not only did you not love them, you didn't even know who they were. I, I still remember. My life was changed. I was with uh, a buddy of mine uh, driving around in his Volkswagen after youth. And we went by a little place right next to the Bible school. And it was called The Hideout. And it was a little cafe. And all the Bible school students would go there. And we were just driving around. And before we went home, he pulled in there, we got out, and we went in, and there were all these Bible school people sitting there, and there were only two seats left, and my friend sat at one end, and I saw the opposite end. There was an empty chair, and I went and sat down, and I sat down, and I looked up, and there was the most beautiful, wonderful woman I'd ever seen in my life. But I didn't know her before that. I couldn't care a hoot about her before that. She could live or die or jump off a bridge. It would have made no difference to me. But then I got then I got to know her. And I know her more now. And I love her more now. But it's really not surprising. It's, the, it's a knowledge of someone that makes you love them. Unless... As you get to know, the more you know, you find out they're evil, wicked, hypocritical. Well, then it doesn't work that way. But with God, that's not the issue. He's, he's supremely, he's supremely good, supremely righteous, supremely faithful, supremely merciful. And all through this letter, Peter's going to say grace gets multiplied. Don't just receive grace. Multiply it the knowledge of our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you start, you start and you meet. You spend endless hours. I can remember my dad getting so frustrated he would come by. Remember the day when there were, there were 
homes that just had yet a phone upstairs and you might have had a phone downstairs. It was attached to the wall. Remember that? And I would be talking to Rini. There was a, a pay phone at the end of the hallway in the girls' dorm, and I had the number for it. And I would call that phone at a certain time, and she would pick it up. And I would be on the phone, and I would just be talking. My dad was not known for subtlety. And so after we had talked and talked and talked, and, and of course for us, it just flies by. But, you know, 45 minutes later, and it's a pastor's home, and my dad would just go by, and he'd just go, click. And just <laughs> Hello? <laughs> you find out people you love, you find out what you, they like, what makes them happy, what makes them sad. And yet there are all sorts of Christians today. Let me say it like this. I don't mean in their creed. I think almost all Christians would talk about how much they love God. But in terms of knowing him, a knowledge of God, there are many Christians who put more effort and time into knowing their dogs than knowing God. If you just looked at the clock... There are thousands of Christians who know more about the playoffs than the Sermon on the Mount. There are Christians who can sing all the top 20 hit songs and can't recite 20 verses from the New Testament if their lives depended on it. And, and to all of us alike, Peter would say, grow in the knowledge. <laughs> grow in the knowledge. It's... it's, it's Wonderful beyond any comparison. If you'll just do it, you will find your heart being changed more and more. You will find more and more delight in God. Next week, we're going to look more specifically, two more steps at how Peter says this can happen.